Good morning, Woods Edge. I miss you. Yell and I miss you. We, we love you. We want to get back together again, as all of us do. And we know this is a difficult season for us, but we also know that God's got this, that God's on His throne, and God is redeeming this and bringing good out of this. So we trust Him. We trust our God. Imagine, church, that one day you're in heaven and God says to you, you can choose any character in the Bible and you can have a long leisurely dinner and you can ask this person any questions whatsoever. You can choose anyone in the Bible except Jesus. Now, church, who would you choose? If we were all here together, I'd have you call out names. What about Moses? What about Moses? What was it like to be on the run from Pharaoh in Egypt? What was it like, Moses, to be out in that desert and the bush is burning and yet not consumed? Moses, what was it like to be in Egypt and those ten plagues, Lord God, uh, that the Lord God put, put out in Egypt? What, what was it like to see the Nile River turn from water to blood? Or... Best of all, what was it like to see the army of Pharaoh crashing down upon you to annihilate you and God splits the waters of the Red Sea wide open and you walk through it? What was that like? Or think of Elijah. 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 When you were up on the top of that Mount Carmel and there were 850 false prophets and y'all had this showdown calling upon that, uh, your God to send fire and they were completely helpless to see any fire. And you prayed to the Almighty God, and He sent fire that lit up that bonfire. What was that like? What was that like? And Elijah, why did you get so depressed after all of that happened that you wanted to die? And Elijah, at the end of your life, what was it like to not die, but just to, to sail up in a chariot of fire? And there are so many others, aren't there, church? Adam and Eve, you could choose. Abraham, up on Mount Moriah with Isaac. Sarah, Joseph, David, Jeremiah, Isaiah, Jonah, inside that whale. What was that like? Daniel in the lion's den. Daniel, what were you feeling? Esther, Mary, the mother of Jesus, Mary and Martha seeing Lazarus raised from the dead. Lazarus, what was that like to be dead and now alive? Peter walking on the water. John, so many options. So many options, but for my part, I choose Paul. The man who was the chief persecutor of the early church, ambushed by the grace of God on the road to Damascus, who then became the leading proponent of the gospel, spreading the gospel throughout the Roman Empire, helping turn the, the whole empire upside down. The man who had hated Jesus before coming to Christ and who fell so deeply in love he could never get over it. The man who wrote 12 of our letters in the New Testament. The man who's writings we live in to this day, inspired by God. The man who 
suffered so greatly. I'd choose Paul. Last week I said that I cannot get enough of Paul and his writings. The writer Frederick Buechner once wrote of Paul, his mads were madder and blues bluer, his pride prouder and humbleness humbler, his strengths stronger and weaknesses weaker than almost anybody else's you'd be apt to think of. And the splash he made when he fell for Christ is audible still. One archbishop of Canterbury put it this way. He said, everywhere Paul went, there was either a revival or a riot. Everywhere I go, they serve tea. This week, we see what happens after Paul's conversion on the Damascus Road. Here's the backstory we saw last week. Paul is on his way to Damascus when the risen Christ appears to him. For three days, Paul is blinded. He eats and drinks nothing. God sends his servant Ananias to restore Paul's sight and then baptize him. And then we come to our passage in the middle of Acts 9. And what can we learn from Paul's story that applies to our daily lives? We will begin reading in Acts 9, verse 19, the second half of the verse. I'll read at the start the first paragraph, Acts 9, 19. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. But their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But his disciples took him by night and led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. Church, this is God's holy word. Last week, we saw that Saul is his Jewish name and Paul his Roman name. His name was not changed at his conversion. He still had both names. But after Acts 13 in the Bible, he is only known by his Roman name, Paul, probably reflecting that he so identified in his mission, not to the Jews, but to the Gentiles. The newly converted Paul immediately began to proclaim Christ in the Jewish synagogues, and everybody is surprised the Jews are surprised, the Christians are surprised, and I think most of all, Paul is surprised. I mean, he's probably more surprised than anybody. Can you imagine what the Jews are thinking? Wait, wait, what, what is this? That's Paul. He was breathing fire and murder against the Christians, and he came here to arrest them, and now he's preaching Jesus? You're kidding me. They would have been flabbergasted. It would be something like the Ayatollah of Iran today, Ali Khamenei, starting to preach Jesus in the mosque of Iran. 
Now, I can only imagine that the Christians in Damascus had been praying that Paul would come to faith, and yet they're still shocked when they see it happens. Verse 21, and all who heard him were amazed and said, is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon his name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? Now, two big takeaways from this start of this passage. One, Paul immediately begins telling people about Jesus. He does not wait until he knows enough or until he's mature enough. If we wait until we know enough or until we're mature enough, we'll still be waiting when we get to heaven. Don't wait. Just start where you are telling people about what Jesus Christ means to you and he's done in your life, just like Paul does here, just like the Samaritan woman did in John 4. Second takeaway, surely many Christians have been praying for Paul's conversion, but when he does come to Christ, they can hardly believe it. Now, in our worship center, all of you who've been here know that we've got a top five basket where we ask you to prayerfully seek God, to give me five non-Christian people or people that I don't think yet know the Lord, and I'm going to write their names on a card, put them in that basket, I'm going to pray for them daily and seek to reach out to them. Now, some of you probably have some of your top five, you're thinking it would be a miracle if he, if she comes to faith in Christ. And I would agree with you, it would take a miracle, but God can do it. So do not give up praying. I love, love the story of the British pastor in the 1800s, George Mueller. Now, Mueller was not only a pastor, but he cared for thousands, thousands of orphans, never asking for any money, but just God brought it in through prayer and faith. Remarkable man. In the course of time, oh, this is what he wrote about it. He said, in the course of time, it pleased God to show me the doctrines of grace in a way in which I had not seen them before. And he is referring to the sovereign grace of God in the Bible. He said, he said um, at first, I hated them. If this were true, I could do nothing at all in the conversion of sinners, as all would depend upon God and the working of His Spirit. So I began to pray for the conversion of five individuals. I prayed every day. Eighteen months elapsed before the first of the five was converted. I thanked God and prayed on for the others. Five years lapsed, and then the second was converted. I thank God for the second and prayed on for the other three. Six more years passed before the third was converted. I thank God for the three and went on praying for the other two. He says, after many years, there were still two people who remained unconverted, but he was undeterred, and he wrote, I pray on looking yet for the answer. They are not converted yet, but they will be. I have not a doubt that I shall meet them both in heaven, for my heavenly Father would not lay upon my heart a burden for prayer for them over these threescore years if he had not concerning them purposes of mercy. Mueller would continue to pray for these two men. One of the men became a Christian shortly before Mueller's death, and the other converted after Mueller's death. George Mueller had been faithful in praying for these two men 
for over 52 years. Church, are you willing to pray 52 years for your top five in that basket? Do, do you want your top five to have somebody fighting for them in desperate, long-suffering prayer like that? Now, by the way, if you have never, maybe you've become part of our church family since we've gone digital, and you've never put your top five in here, or for whatever reason you haven't, do this. Ask God, give me five people, and then email them to us at info at woodsedge.org. We'll write them on a card, put them in the basket, and they'll join with us. Okay, back to the passage, verse 22. But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. Now, when, that, when the Bible says that Paul increased all the more in strength and power, this is not human power, is it? This is the power of God. This is the power of the Spirit. Remember the theme verse in Acts 1.8. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Always by the Spirit. A few verses earlier, in verse 17, last week we saw it, that Paul, when he was baptized, was filled with the Holy Spirit from that time on. All through the book of Acts, early Christians are filled with the Spirit. They depend upon the Spirit. It's, it's Zechariah 4, 6 at the end of the Old Testament. Not by might, nor by power, but by my Spirit, says the Lord. If we hope to reach our top five for Christ, if we hope to live the sort of life that deep down we long to live, if we want to see God do a great work in our city, in our midst, we too must be filled, surrendered, dependent upon the power of the Spirit. We must be led by the Spirit, empowered by the Spirit. And then we read in verse 22 that uh, empowered, growing in strength, he confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. Isn't that interesting? He proved that Jesus was the Christ. That means the Messiah, the long-promised Savior. Now, no doubt, he was probably showing them that Jesus fulfills every prophecy in the Old Testament. He fulfills every sacrifice in the Old Testament. He fulfills uh, Abraham sacrificing Isaac. He fulfills every prophecy in the Old Testament including Isaiah 53 and Psalm 22 and all the rest. And no doubt he was also telling them about his own experience encountering the risen Christ on the road to Damascus. Now, watch what happens next in verse 23. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. But their plot became known to Paul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But his disciples took him by night and led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. Now, it will be later in the New Testament, Galatians 1, where Paul will give us more detail on the chronology. And this is what happens. After preaching Jesus in Damascus for some time, God calls Paul to, to leave Damascus and go out into the wilderness of Arabia. At that time, Arabia would extend way beyond the Arabian Peninsula today, way up into modern-day Syria. So he probably just went out into the wilderness, and he was out there, apparently by himself. God 
building into him, revealing truth to him, growing him. After some time out there by himself with God, then he returns to Damascus for a season. And finally, after three years, we see in Galatians 1, after three years, he will leave Damascus, escaping in a basket at night and go to Jerusalem. Now, Paul had arrived, of course, in Damascus as the persecutor, and now he flees Damascus as the persecuted. He, the hunter, became the hunted. And then he returns to Jerusalem where he faces even more rejection. Verse 26, and when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, and they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. Now, imagine that. In Damascus, the Jews tried to kill Paul, but the Christians accepted him after a time. But in Jerusalem, even the Christians reject him. They were afraid that he was pretending to be a Christian so he could get, on the, get in on the inside and liquidate them. However, there was a man. There was a man in the church, an unusual, big-hearted man by the name of Barnabas who reaches out to Paul. This man was known by his nickname, Barnabas, encourager. Barnabas was Mr. Encourager. Don't you love to be around a Barnabas, an encourager? Now, Barnabas was first introduced to us at the end of Acts 4. There he sells some of his property and brings money to the church leaders so they could in turn distribute to financially needy people in the church. Now, by the way, many of you, most of you are doing really something very similar right now. Those of you with income are giving faithfully to God here at your church home. You bring it to the leaders of the church. We, in turn, are using those resources not only to disciple children and students and teenagers and adults, but we are reaching lost people for Christ beyond our walls and around the world, and we are distributing money to needy people both inside the church and outside the church. So you're doing the same thing. Way to go, church. Now, Barnabas here takes a big risk when he goes to bat for Paul. I mean, what if he's wrong and some people get killed? Verse 27, but Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them on how the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. Now, apparently, Barnabas saw Paul not as who he had been, but as who he had become and would become. Isn't that what encouragers do? Don't they see people not as who they are or who they have been, but as who they can become? That's what disciples do. That's what good parents do. That's what loving spouses do. Barnabas sees Paul's potential and accepts him. He believes in Paul, takes him to the leaders, and tell them, you ought to believe in him too. And they do. Do you have someone who has believed in you that way? Do you have someone who has come alongside you and gone to bat for you and supported you and believed in you and saw you as how you could become? I, I will never forget being in my dorm room at Lovett College at Rice University as a freshman near the time 
I, I went there to, to try out for the track team. And, and my roommate was a scholarship athlete, John Lodwick. And I was not sure I could run with these scholarship guys, college guys. But my roommate, John, assured me. He said, Jeff, you can run with these guys. Of course you can. You can hang with these guys. And if John believed it, I began to believe it too. By the way, John and I would become roommates the next four years of college, next three years of seminary, and even a year training for the Olympic trials out in Eugene, Oregon. Those life-giving words, that was all the encouragement I needed. John saw in me what I did not yet see in myself. Have you had people like that in your life? Or even better, have you done that for other people? Barnabas, courager. Church, one of the most powerful, life-changing things you can do for anyone is to encourage them deeply. When you see someone not as who they are, but as who they can become, it is so powerful. The world is full of discouragers. We need encouragers. See people the way they can become, the way God can make them. Encourage everybody around you, your spouse and your kids begin there. Your friends, people in your journey group, your students, if you're a teacher, be a Barnabas. There is so much power there, and every Christian can do it. Okay, Barnabas vouches for Paul, and the church accepts him. Verse 28, so he, Paul, went in and out among them in Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. Now, that's the second verse in a row. We've seen the word boldly. Paul preaches boldly, 27 and 28. He was bold because of the power of the Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit who gives us boldness to reach out to lost people. It is interesting that Paul will later in the New Testament ask Christians, would you pray for me for boldness in my witness? Now, that encourages me that Paul asked for prayer for boldness because that tells me it wasn't just completely natural and easy for Paul, but even Paul needed God's people to pray for him boldness. Now, some people around me, it seems like they are so bold in witness. I think of people in our church like Guy Caskey, or, or like uh, Mary Van Oost and Jake Prince and others, many others. But most of us need more boldness in our witness, and that includes me. And I'd love your prayers for boldness. Oh, God, help us. Help us. Verse, 20, verse 29, and Paul spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, the Greek-speaking Jews. But they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. Now, remember again what that Archbishop of Canterbury had once said. Everywhere Paul went, there was either revival or riot. And here they are. At Damascus, they try to kill him. Here at Jerusalem, they're trying to kill him. There's a riot all through his life. Now, do you recall back in Acts 6, this same group of people, these Hellenists, attack Stephen and martyr him. They stone him to death. In fact, Paul helps them do it. But now, this same group of Hellenists want Paul dead. They're trying to kill Paul. But Paul will escape. The, the brothers there will whisk him away. And he will escape and live another 25 years. So think about it. Same group of Hellenists want these powerful men of God dead. 
One of them, Stephen, gets killed immediately. The other one, Paul, escapes and lives 25 years. Have you learned that we cannot compare what God does with somebody else and what he does with us? Have you learned that God deals with each one of us individually and we cannot and must not compare ourselves with others? God deals with us individually. Rather, we trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your understanding. So at this point, the leaders, get him out of there. Get him to Caesarea where he goes back home where he grew up in Tarsus. That's in modern-day Turkey. And he will stay in Tarsus seven or eight years before Barnabas, Mr. Encourager, goes and gets Paul and brings him to help the church in Antioch, gets Paul back in the action again. Okay, the final verse, 31. So, as a result, the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up, and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. So the gospel spread throughout Judea and Samaria and Galilee. The map on, the, on your screen shows Judea down in the bottom, the south part. That would include Jerusalem. And then up above that is Samaria, and up above that with the Sea of Galilee, that's Galilee. Now, back in Acts 1-8, he had only mentioned Judea and Galilee, but implicitly including Samaria, or he had included Judea and Samaria, implicitly including Galilee. But here it's all. Now, remember Acts 1-8 was the theme verse. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Now, this is the second of seven summary statements in the book of Acts. The first one was in Acts 6-7. Here's the second. There will be four more. Each of them are going to unfold Acts 1-8's fulfillment. Acts 6-7 says the gospel went out throughout all Jerusalem, and now throughout all Judea, Samaria, he includes Galilee, and then the next four, four progressive stages to the rest of the world. So the gospel is spreading in the power of the Holy Spirit, which it is stated right here. The church does not add incrementally. Note that the Bible says here that the church multiplies. It multiplies. Part of our vision here at Woods Edge is to see 10 movements. That means multiplication, not just a little bit of addition. We want to see movements, Book of Acts-like movements, both here in the Houston area and internationally. Five in Houston, five internationally, because that's what God is doing around the world, and that's we want to be a part of it. In fact, we have a staff pastor, Guy Kasky, who is completely dedicated to movements, uh, should be coming up on your screen. He's got a team, and they focus both in Houston and beyond on movements around the world. And you are part of this church through your giving, through your praying, through your reaching out to your neighbors. You're a part of this, as we all seek to bless the people around us. All right, church, that's that beautiful passage. Several threads that we can apply to our lives, and maybe the Spirit has impressed one of them particularly on your heart. First of all, don't wait until you know enough to share Christ. Do it now. Secondly, 
Keep praying for your top five because no one is beyond God's grace. If God can save Paul, he can save your friend. Thirdly, the power for the spiritual life, the power for witness, the power for boldness comes from the Holy Spirit. Surrender. Depend upon the Spirit. Fourthly, Stephen died young. Paul lived on. Don't compare yourself with others. We do not understand all that God does. God is God, and we trust him. Next, we want as a church to see multiplication movements, just like in the book of Acts. And then the final application. We've seen the passage I think is the biggest of all, is God can use you and me to bring life-giving, life-breathing encouragement to the people around us. And so, church, I ask you, as I ask myself, what is the Spirit of God saying to you and pressing upon you this morning as we open His Holy Word? Earlier, I gave you the example of my roommate, John Lodwick, encouraging me that I could run in college. But for me, the best example of all is my wife, Gail. Gail's strongest trait, in fact, has been that she has believed, her strongest trait as a wife for 40 years this June, next month, has been that she has believed in me and supported me. Just one example. When we started Wood's Edge in 1993, 26 years ago, I had gone through four very difficult years of ministry, planning a church, then helping to merge two churches, and it had not gone well. In fact, at the end of that time, by the time we started Wood's Edge, I had lost my confidence as a pastor and as a preacher. But Gail never lost confidence in me. She believed in me when I did not believe in myself. And God used her encouragement, her support, her confidence, her prayers to bring healing to my soul and to restore my confidence. confidence. And that's just one example. Gail has believed in me for 40 years. Now, she'll challenge me, of course, but she believes in me. She's for me. Now, church, this applies to all of us to be this kind of encouragers, but Wives, I'm going to take a moment, a parenthesis, and say to you, if you are married, wives, your husbands need you to believe in them. In Ephesians 5, the Bible tells the husbands three times to love your wife, love your wife, love your wife. He does not tell the wives to love their husbands. Rather, he tells the wives to respect their husbands, to believe in them, support them, get behind them, respect them. Wives, maybe we men just have a little bit of a fragile ego, and we need our wives to believe in us, to respect us, and to have confidence in us. It is your sacred duty before God to do that, not for your sake or his sake, but for Christ's sake. But this is true for all of us. All of us desperately need encouragement, and we need to be encouragers, especially now, all this going on with the virus, with the economy, with social isolation and lockdown. There are so many people around us who need encouragement. Be alert to the people that God is bringing into your life. It will mean so much. The best encouragement of all is to bring the hope of Jesus Christ, the life-giving, life-changing hope of Jesus Christ. Church, right now, we're going to just breathe Close your eyes. I'm going to ask you 
for a few moments of silent prayer, listening to God, ask God this, Lord, who do I need to encourage? Who do I need to encourage? Go ahead, listen to the Lord. Lord God, help us to pass on the love to others that you've loved us with. Lord, we thank you for your love. Lord God, may we be filled afresh with your spirit and be the people you want us to be, including the encouragement. Friend, if you're out there and you have never trusted Christ as your Savior from sin right now, your whole eternity can change. Your whole eternity can change. I urge you. Put your trust in a Savior. Breathe a prayer. Jesus, come and save me. And He will do it. He will do it. Amen. Amen.